Matthew 26, verses 17 to 35. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The Gospel of Christ. Christ. In the Gospel readings from John and Matthew this evening, you've You've got different and overlapping accounts of the same event. Matthew has the first gospel purposefully providing the information that he gives, and John, the last gospel written, doing the same, particularly in regards to the scene in the upper room. And these varying perspectives and angles might be compared to different people who witnessed the same event, but from different positions. And so how they relay what they saw isn't necessarily identical. For instance, if there was a car crash at an intersection and there was a person standing at each corner of the intersection, they all witnessed the same crash, but not in exactly the same way. Well, the four Gospels often act in a similar fashion, giving us those different points of view, though invariably for theological reasons. Well, for our purposes this evening, we're going to consider the text that we just heard from Matthew 26. And to give a little bit of context, in the first 16 verses of the chapter, we're met with the plotting Jewish leaders seeking an opportunity when they can have Jesus killed, concluding it wouldn't be during the feast. And then there's the beautiful scene in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper when the woman anoints Jesus with the costly oil, an extravagant act of love and devotion that's met with with protests from the disciples but praise from Jesus. 
her act being recounted when the gospel is proclaimed. Then there's Judas, whose selfish actions stand in sharp contrast to that of the woman's, and who offers the Jewish leaders an opportunity to see Jesus that they can't resist, and for a measly 30 pieces of silver. So Judas actively sought a time to betray Jesus. But despite the plotting of the wicked, Matthew clearly portrays these events as taking place with Jesus' complete knowledge, that everything is going according to plan. There's no doubt that God is completely aware of what's going on and that Jesus confidently moves forward into the coming darkness and suffering, knowing full well that it won't be the end of the story, that there's more to come. And that triumphal note continues in our, in our text in the various scenes that are here, which should be implicitly encouraging and emboldening to us today. Matthew has moved from Tuesday to Thursday, and he makes use of another contrast. Having just recorded the disciple Judas Iscariot acting in a self-serving manner in order to betray Jesus, Here are some disciples that approach Jesus and ask, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? They come seeking to serve. They're eager to help. And the way the text is structured, you have a wonderful model of discipleship displayed. Now, verses 17 and 19 actually form a simple and neat chiasm. The disciples approach Jesus, asking where to to prepare Passover. Jesus then commands, go to the city. The message to the man, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover is at the center. The disciples did as commanded, and then the disciples prepared the Passover. The disciples simply act on Jesus' word on his command. And though they may have had other questions, and we might wonder what they talked about on their way into the city, we simply read of their obedience, of their doing as Jesus commanded. John Calvin observed, The disciples make no anxious inquiry about the result, but peaceably obey the injunction. And if we are desirous to have our faith approved, we ought to abide by this rule, to be satisfied with the command alone, and go forward wherever God commands, and expecting the success which He promises, not to indulge in excess anxiety. And that's that's true for disciples today, isn't it? It's true for you and for me. There may not be clarity for us on every point of a particular circumstance that is facing us, though we may wish for it, and yet we can come back to the basics of obedience. You know, what has Jesus told me to do? How does his word, his command, instruct me to live in a moment such as this? And in our seeking to obey in that regard, we can be satisfied for the present to follow him in what is clear to us. And the disciples have enough in order to obey, to move forward by faith, And inevitably, we will likewise be so supplied. So these disciples approach Jesus and then readily and willingly go and obey. And likely we should hear echoes of Exodus 12 in the text, even as the sons of Israel followed Moses' instruction about keeping the original Passover. Further, in the message delivered to the man in the city, Jesus declares, My time is at hand. Now back in verse 16, Judas sought a time to betray Jesus. So who is directing these events? Who is in control? But also, as the story is told, there's this anonymous man in the city who's somewhat privy to Jesus' plans, apparently with whom Jesus has already communicated about what's going to take place. Don't you want to know who he was? 
this man knew something of what it would mean for Jesus to say, for Jesus to say, my time is near. He's familiar with Jesus' coming passion, it seems. And much like Matthew's telling us about the anonymous woman in Bethany at Simon the leper's house, this man is also anonymous and rarely served Jesus and his disciples in this fashion. So the necessary preparations were made, and then the scene switches in verse 20 to the meal that has been readied. And what information are we immediately given? When it was evening. Now that indicates after sunset. That means according to Hebrew timing, uh, to Hebrew timekeeping, it's now Friday. And remember their days were marked as moving from evening to evening. Uh, the Old Covenant takes place in the dark, symbolically speaking. Also, we should have lurking in our thoughts the fact that Passover was celebrated after sunset. Then we read that Jesus reclined at table, the, the uh, posture of feasting in the ancient world, and the posture mentioned at the dinner of Simon the leper. And Jesus is with the twelve. He's gathered around the table with those that are the picture of the new Israel. Of course, Judas is there, not only by implication as one of the twelve, but also as the story goes on to reveal. And, and remember, we have the reader's edge. We know where he's been, to whom he's talked. Uh, in many respects, we are privy to the same information that Jesus knew. You know, we're up to speed. But in the midst of this celebration of this festal gathering of Jesus and his closest companions, while eating, Jesus announces to them that one of them would betray him. You know, just imagine if as you were eating just a few moments ago and, and someone announces, I'm going to be, one of you is going to be betray me. Wouldn't that affect the dinner conversation? See, and how did the disciples react to Jesus' announcement? Note it well, they're very sorrowful or exceedingly sorrowful. This is a very difficult thing for them to hear, especially in this setting. See, table fellowship and betrayal don't go together. You don't eat with enemies. And you don't expect your closest friends to betray you, which, of course, is precisely what makes betrayal so sinister. But then you can just imagine the sudden murmuring of questions after the initial shock of Jesus' statement as his statement settles in. The question comes first from across the table. Is it I, Lord? And then closer to where Jesus is sitting. Is it I, Lord? And then farther down the table again. Is it I, Lord? Surely each disciple takes their turn, 11 voices raising the question, assuming an answer in the negative, and yet confessing a certain vulnerability. And true disciples know something of that, don't they? Knowing yourself well enough that you don't put any sin as past your capability of doing, and yet that very recognition of weakness causing you to cast yourself newly upon the Lord in faith and prayer to guard you and keep you. All we have to do is look at the life of King David, the man after God's own heart, and recognize that none of us is safe in the sense that we should ever be overconfident about our inability to fall into sin um, in some form or fashion. There's a healthy self-suspicion that is right for God's people to have of themselves. Not in a paralyzing sense, by any means, but in the sense that brings us to renewed humility. Well, Jesus answers in a general fashion, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Well, that could still be any one of them. They'd all dipped to eat. His words don't narrow it down. 
And keep in mind, it's not like all of the disciples readily looked at Judas Iscariot as the, the candidate for betrayal. None of the disciples knew or had a clue as to who it might be. Now, likely there are echoes of Psalm 41.9 where, um, where David laments, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In the context of the psalm, David goes on to affirm God's promise to deliver the righteous. Jesus does as well. David's enemies are described as whispering and conspiring against him. Also Jesus' experience. The lifting up of this friend's heel against David makes him look like a serpent being crushed. Jesus will be crushed in a manner of speaking. But in the very next verse, David declares, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up and I may repay him. See, that's the language of resurrection and vindication. And certainly Jesus, certainly Jesus also has those realities firmly in view. And notice how verse 24 then contains that marvelous biblical tension of these events happening according to what is written, according to God's purpose and plan. And yet the betrayer is fully responsible for his actions. Judas, Judas is held responsible for what he does. And these words of Jesus act as a final call to repentance, a final warning for him to beware of what will befall him. And so great is this betrayal that it would have been better had Judas never been born. That may be a more remarkable statement than we can grasp. It would have been better if Judah had never existed. That's a heavy condemnation. Who knows what Judas thought when Jesus announced a betrayer in their, in their midst. Surely his mind raced. What do I do? Play it cool? Maybe he's just suspicious and trying to see how we'll react. And you can just picture Judas watching the, others, the, the other disciples around the table, all asking, is it I, Lord? Trying to keep his face as blank as possible. He's been reluctant to say anything. But the other 11 have spoken, and he doesn't want to draw unnecessary attention by not asking the same question. But then listen again to how he couches his question. Is it I, Rabbi? See, Jesus doesn't call Jesus Lord, but Rabbi. And throughout Matthew's gospel, who calls Jesus Rabbi? Only those on the outside, those not among Jesus' disciples... Jesus, though apparently an insider, is really an outsider. And his use of this title is also a way of lumping Jesus into a category with all the other rabbis of the day, as if there was nothing special about him. Of course, Jesus knows he's not fooled by Judas. The cynical question that falls from the betrayer's lips is known for what it is. Whether willingly or not, Judas is owning up to his sin, and Jesus makes it clear that he knows exactly what's going on. And we hear later in Matthew's gospel, when's the next time Judas uses the, the, the title rabbi? When does he call Jesus rabbi? When he meets him in the garden to kiss him, to betray him, to signal him to the soldiers. But yet we have to see and hear these threads of triumph of Jesus' full awareness of what's taking place of his knowingly going forward according to what has been written, according to the ancient plan of God. See, thus far, you don't get the impression that Jesus is rattled in any form or fashion. 
And that's an impressive testimony to his faith in his father and the promises that his father has made to him and the surety that his, and the surety that his father won't fail him in the least. So as Jesus announced a betrayer in their midst while they were eating, now still while eating, he transforms the Passover meal and sets before them a new meal that speaks to deliverance and formation. And amazingly, in this meal is Jesus' answer to the disciples' fears and worry about whether they are traitors. Yes, one of them will betray him, and yes, we'll hear, again, tomorrow night in the next section, they'll all deny and abandon him. But what does Jesus do in these actions of bread and wine? He gives himself to his disciples in complete self-abandonment. He loves them despite their impending failures, despite their acts of selfish self-preservation, despite their giving themselves over to fear and forsaking him. Consider, Jesus' words at the Last Supper are the only explanation he provides for the multi-layered significance of his death. He revises the meaning of the Passover, which indicates that his sacrificial separation of body and blood on the cross constitutes a new Passover, a new deliverance from Egypt. The bread becomes my body, Jesus' own self given to the disciples as food. The cup contains the blood of the covenant, an allusion to Exodus 24.8, where the blood of sacrifices seals the original Sinai covenant. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Blood poured out would not only remind the disciples of temple sacrifice. Indeed, under the law, almost anything, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But would also call up Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. But what does the drinking of blood indicate? Before it was externally applied to furniture or people, but now blood is internalized. This means that they are drawing nearer to God than they have ever been able to do so before. They join God in the most intimate fellowship by drinking the wine instead of pouring it out before him. In this way, they commune with God in the most intimate way. They share the life of God as they are able to draw near to God in Christ. But what does it mean to share life with God? What is the life of God like? That life is revealed perfectly in Jesus. He expends himself for the life of others. Here's the pattern of the new commandment, the nova mandatum as given in John 13. And when we understand Jesus' words in the context of the Passover meal, Jesus speaks when the Father would have normally expounded the story of redemption from Egypt, which marked the original formation of Israel as the people of God. Now Jesus' death is the redemptive sacrifice that inaugurates a new covenant community. Jesus' sacrifice is the basis of a new covenant. And yet, yet notice again the, the, the triumphal tone of Jesus' words. As he looks beyond the cross in verse 29, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Jesus' table fellowship with his disciples will be interrupted by his death, but he looks forward to the resurrection when he will drink again the fruit of the vine with the disciples. Ultimately, he will recline at table with the disciples in the consummated kingdom. And so, and consider how the, the future is, is breaking into the present. How Jesus is establishing the reality of what's to come on the other side of the cross now before the cross is encountered. Verse 30 probably belongs with the section before marking the end of their meal together, but certainly acts as a transition verse as Matthew records a change of location. Location. Uh, Jesus and the disciples likely sang one of the Hallel Psalms, possibly Psalm 118, and then departed. And what's Jesus going to do? He's going into battle. And you sing psalms when you go into battle. And that brings us to the last section of verses 31 to 35. Here Jesus explains his arrest and the scattering of the disciples in terms of Zechariah 13, 7 through 9, where Yahweh commands the sword, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This all happens at night. The night that happens to be Passover. When has there been another night strike in Scripture? Most significantly, the night of the first Passover, as we read in Exodus 12. Here in Matthew, Jesus is Yahweh's shepherd. But on this Passover night, Jesus is also the firstborn within the new Egypt. He is struck and his people scatter, but will be restored to him in Galilee. On Passover, Jesus doesn't take the place of the rescued Israelite firstborns, but of the struck Egyptian firstborns, or alternately, the place of the Passover lamb who substitutes for the Israelite firstborn. Since Israel has become Egypt, Jesus, as the firstborn of his people, will die. Does the gospel night strike include a strike against the idols of the new Egypt? Consider that in the wider context of Matthew, in the chapters that have preceded, Jesus has condemned the temple, predicting an abomination that brings desolation. Also within the passion narrative itself, there seems to be a couple of further connections. First, Jesus says that he will cause stumbling, or the disciples will be scandalized when he is struck. This is a word that is used quite a number of times throughout throughout Matthew. In the Greek Old Testament, the noun form of this verb is commonly associated with idolatry. Idols cause Israel to stumble and fall, but Jesus says that he will be the cause of stumbling. He stands in the place of the idol. Perhaps we're to understand that Israel has become so corrupted, so thoroughly at home with the idols of Egypt, that Yahweh himself, coming in flesh, is a strange and alien god. Jesus causes stumbling because his passion runs contrary to everything Israel has come to hope for. Second and more straightforwardly, we can see Israelite idolatry at work work in the arrest of Jesus. A mob comes for him with clubs and swords, a sign that the Jews have become thoroughly corrupted by the idolatry of power. Many Jews, despite their Roman masters, many, many Jews despise their Roman masters, but it's a rivalry of imitation. Even the disciples, at least one of them, is corrupted by the same idolatry, taking up his sword to defend Jesus. In the Passion, the idols of Israel become Egypt are judged because the path of zealotry is put on trial and condemned, and the path of the cross is offered as the path of faithfulness. Again, this is, this is related to the scandal that Jesus causes. 
The disciples all stumble and fall and flee when Jesus refuses to take up the sword in his own defense, when he denies himself and takes up the cross. And if we jump back to chapter 11, we see this come into even sharper focus. Now, when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. But the disciples, every last one of them, will be scandalized by Jesus. And yet again, note the triumph in Jesus' words, verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, a time after the resurrection is clearly in view. The cross is not the end of the story. And to meet up in Galilee is to go back where Jesus' ministry began. And Christ does not simply say that he will rise again, but promises to be their leader and takes them for his companions as if they had never swerved from their allegiance to him. And to impart to them greater confidence, he mentions the place where they will meet again, as if he said, you who are scattered at Jerusalem will again be assembled by me in Galilee. But Peter protests and directly contradicts the Lord and makes himself out to be more loyal than the others. And maybe as the de facto leader, it's understandable for him to think of himself in this way. And maybe we should give some credit to Peter, who seems to have learned a thing or two since chapter 16 and recognized that he may very well have to die because of his allegiance to Christ. But the Lord is proven right in this as well, for Peter will deny Jesus three times, indicative of a complete denial. Now, Peter crows to the contrary, only to be told a crowing rooster will remind him of his threefold failure. Peter and the disciples will face a test of loyalty something that they haven't really faced up to this point. And all of them will fail, even Peter. And maybe we've thought about these things ourselves and have come to the conclusion, yes, I would die for Jesus. I'd be willing to physically give up my life for Christ and for his cause. And we gear ourselves up to make such a statement and we, and we kind of talk ourselves into it and then assure ourselves that we would be willing to die if the moment required it because we know that's the right thing. But the test of loyalty isn't necessarily that heroic, is it? It can come in a much less dramatic way and the temptation for us to stumble because of Christ may take the form of an anonymous person challenging us or asking a question about our allegiance to Jesus. Maybe we simply don't want to be singled out, to feel exposed or alone. The test of loyalty may come in, in a moment such as that. The disciples who earlier around the table were generally questioning whether they could be a betrayer are now so sure that they would never deny their Lord. But they will, every last one of them. And yet... Jesus' words to them, look beyond that failure and to their future gathering together again. And try to imagine how the early church in Matthew's day would have heard these words. Those who would have certainly been tested in regards to their loyalty to Jesus, facing scorn and being ostracized from family and community for fidelity to Christ. 
what encouragement they would have received. And that picture and that truth and those words and actions of Jesus to his disciples then and to the early church should be a great encouragement to his disciples still. Jesus willingly gives himself for his disciples who will not always be faithful. And he bears with them and still calls them to participate in God's plan, to take their part, to fulfill their role in service to the Father's kingdom. The disciples will experience a temporary exile when their king is struck down, but they will be gathered together again and restored. There's a a feast to partake of. There's new wine to be drunk. And Jesus wants his disciples to join him for that feast. And like the disciples, you will fail and have failed. But that doesn't surprise Jesus. And he still desires your company at his feast and bids you meet him there. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel that even that indeed has been declared to us and it is good news of what Christ has done. We thank you for your word to us this evening and may it bear fruit in our, in our lives to your honor and glory and for the sake of your kingdom. And may we find continued encouragement and greater encouragement in the life of faith to which you've called us. For those who have been afraid or are afraid, may you call them back to yourself and be to them the God who is near and carry them along in their distress. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.